Well, let's look together at that passage Andy read for us at the end of Joshua 21, the last three verses of Joshua 21. We want to, of course, get our bearings. I feel like we're starting this way every week, but it's helpful to uh, remember where you are in the storyline of Joshua. Israel has taken a break from battle. God has given them this temporary rest, and it's really a landmark moment in Israel's history. They've entered into the land. They've been given rest from their enemies. And even though the job is not done, there are still enemies to drive out, and you can see that in the very next book that follows this, the book of Judges. The first couple of chapters talk about those enemies that they fail to drive out. But even though they've not driven everyone out, they've reached a point of representative possession of all the land. They've had enough victory, they've conquered enough, they've driven out enough of their enemies, they've killed in battle many of their enemies, enough so that we can have this amazing statement at the end of Joshua 21, verse 43, where it says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, according to all that He had sworn to their fathers, And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. What an amazing statement of God's faithfulness. Even amid Israel's faltering, Israel always being so shaky in their faith, being so shaky of course, in their obedience. If you're shaky in your faith, you're going to be shaky in your obedience. You see that over and over again in Israel's history, but God, because of the promises He had made, is so faithful and has brought them to this point and has driven out their enemy, given them to their hand, the text says. There were these 12 tribes who did this together, and we have witnessed a great thing. The summary that I gave you for this book, we haven't looked at this for a few weeks, the summary for the book of Joshua that I gave for you is this, Yahweh keeps His promises by powerfully saving His people through faith and purging the evil among them. Therefore, we shall courageously follow Him into blessing. And I think we've seen that in the book of Joshua, haven't we? That God keeps His promises, and He does it through saving His people through faith and by purging the evil among them. We've seen many examples of that. Well, they had, in fact, at this point in their history, realized a great chunk of this promise. They've realized that God is faithful. They've moved into this land, and they're seeing the work of God among them. But remaining in the land required great commitment. You see, the the battle going into the land and having combat with the people there is just the start. And God was going before them. God was delivering over their enemies. And now that they've reached this point where they're kind of sitting back and patting each other on the back and surveying the land and saying, this is great. Well, now they have to ask the question, how shall we then live? Because now the work really begins. It's not just about the initial battle. It's about the lifelong service to God and faith. And the rest of the book, chapters 22, 23, and 24, kind of give us that perspective War is over for the time being, so what now? What shall we do now? And what Joshua is going to do is bring our focus to right living and how they are to live before God and handling and stewarding this blessing that He had given them. 
This was a time where there should have been great unity, and for many markers you could look at, there was great unity in the land. The 12 tribes were unified in a lot of ways, but there was a slight split. It didn't have to be a big deal, but it comes up in this chapter once again, where you had one tribe that broke off into two. There was that tribe of Manasseh, where half the tribe went into the land of Canaan, and the other half stayed with Reuben and Gad outside of the land. And I want us to have our memories refreshed on this, so turn back with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, we see this slight break in unity where you had two and a half tribes that were content to settle east of the Jordan River, not all the way into the land that God had given Israel. They wanted to settle before that. It says in Joshua 1, starting in verse 12, to the Reubenites and the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So we've got a map that we're going to put up here. And again, this is a vertical-oriented map for Israel on a wide screen. And so there's not much we can do to make that look better. But if you see uh, the Dead Sea there, it's that cylindrical-looking light blue-colored uh, blotch there. Uh, and there's a little river that goes up from the, Red, or the Dead Sea up to the Sea of Galilee. East of the Dead Sea, toward the sunrise, as we just read, you have Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. You can see Manasseh's both on the east and on the west because half the tribe settled east of the Jordan and the other half settled west of the Jordan in the land that God was giving them. Well, those uh, two and a half tribes that were east of the Jordan, they had a lot of cattle. And in our passage that we just read, uh, it was referenced that Moses gave them that land. They said, hey, this is good cattle land, and we want to stay here with all our cattle. And Moses said, okay, you know, it's a little strange, but okay, this is what you want to do. This is what you can do with the stipulation that you go in and you still fight in the land of Canaan because all these other tribes are wanting to go west of the Jordan, and they need your help. And so they committed to do that, and we can even see that here in our passage in chapter 1. Look at verse 16. They reaffirmed their commitment as they said to Moses, they say to Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. What an amazing statement. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command them or command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. So, Perhaps there was a bit of suspicion, a little air of suspicion on Joshua's part saying, okay, you guys are settling short of the land here, east of the Jordan. You have to come in and fight with us before you can have this land. Remember, these Israelites, they come from a line of people who didn't like to obey God in battle. If you remember the 12 spies that were sent out, they went out and looked at the land and 10 of them said, ah, we can't fight those guys. And they didn't want to go into battle. So Joshua here is making them say, promise you're going to go into battle, and so they did. 
They went into battle with the other tribes. They reassured him of their commitment. This is a bit of a strange development if you consider what's going on here, because God had given Israel this land west of the Jordan, and he gave them specific measurements as, to, as far as rivers are concerned. He gave them the boundaries of what this land looked like. Abraham, the father of the Jews, he went out and he walked the land, and he, they knew what land was theirs. And these two and a half tribes said, ah, we kind of like it over here in Gilead, east of Canaan. They viewed it as the Lord's inheritance for them. And it seems right to Moses, it seems right to Joshua that they settled there. Well, they were faithful to their commitment. Since chapter 1, we've read about seven years of battle. You, maybe you didn't know that. We've covered seven years in this Joshua series. And those two and a half tribes were faithful to their word. They did go into the land and they did help drive out all their enemies before going back. What an amazing thing. And again, if you go back to chapter 22 with me, where we'll be today, you see this moment where their enemies are basically defeated. And it's time for these two and a half tribes to go back to the land of Gilead. And yet Joshua is going to send them off with a reminder. Let's look at the first six verses of Joshua 22. It says, At that point, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Well, um, off they go. Joshua blessed them. You see that in verse 6, and you see that again in verse 7, actually that Joshua gave them a blessing. He gave them a great commission of sorts. You remember Jesus, his final words to his disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them what I've taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, Joshua's great commission here is go obey the law, okay? Go back to your land, cross over the Jordan, and go submit to the law of Moses. Aren't you thankful we have a better commission than that? We have the greatest commission because, uh, of course, we can't keep the law, can we? And Israel proved that. But he blessed them and he encouraged them to go enjoy their land. He encouraged them to enjoy the spoil they had received from war. And off they went. And that should be the end of the story, happily ever after. They go home, everyone's happy, the end. But you see, chapter 22 is pretty long. <laughs> There's a lot more that happens. They actually did something that they hadn't informed Joshua about. And I want us to see this starting at verse 10. Look at this. It says, When they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. And the sons of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. 
Let's stop right there. This was a cause for concern. When the other tribes found out that these two and a half tribes, after just being told, obey the law, that they had gone off and built their own altar, this was a cause for concern. This was a major cause for concern in Israel. And we'll talk about that momentarily. But for the moment, I want us to consider some other factors here. This altar, of course, was large. It says that in our text that I just read. It was a large altar in appearance, verse 10. It was by the Jordan River. Looks like it was on the west side, the side that didn't even belong to them. It was the side that belonged to the other tribes. And right now, what we have in our text today, I want you to get this, is we have a relationship opportunity. (laughs) The tribes who have heard about this large altar, some of them saw it with their own eyes, they now have an opportunity to confront these two and a half tribes in a healthy, righteous, holy way. Now, spoiler alert, they don't do it. But this is an opportunity. I want you to see this as relationship opportunity. Because situations like this, and I'm sure that you've been involved in several, perhaps you're in the middle of one now, that are eyebrow-raising type of situations. Alarming situations where someone has done something and it's really, it seems like an offense. It seems foolish. It perhaps seems sinful or even wicked. That is an opportunity for you as a Christian to confront in both wisdom and love. You have an opportunity anytime that there's conflict, just like they did here. When it seems like someone is acting foolishly, you have an opportunity to show the love of Christ. Now, I'm going to give you some scripture for situations like this. You don't have to turn with me to all of them. You might want to jot them down, though. But starting with Micah 6, 8, this was a commission given, given to Israel later on in their history. What has he told you, O man? Do what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You think in times of conflict, it would be good to prioritize justice, kindness, and humility? (laughs) Yeah, you better believe it. How about uh, from the book of James? This is James chapter 1, 19 and 20. This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Wow. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You think that one's important when it comes to matters of conflict? You better believe it. Slow to speak, slow to anger. If everyone involved in a confrontation had that attitude, I think we would get somewhere, right? This is later on in James, James chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. In verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor, it asks. Okay, now we'll talk about judging here in a moment, but general rule of thumb here, be slow to judge. It's good to be slow to judge and to make sure you're learning before you judge. Okay, a couple more passages. Matthew chapter 7. You remember this one. Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. In verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. Ooh, that one should cut this morning for some of you. Now, what does Bodhi Bakum say? If you can't say amen, say ouch. 
by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Okay? And I'll, I'll give you one more. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen to that. Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, the sons of Israel didn't have any of those verses <laughs> like we do today. Now, they had some other verses that they could have implemented here to give them wisdom. God has always given His people sufficient revelation to live for Him in every age. But look at verse 12. When the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. <laughs> they made quite a leap there, didn't they? They heard about something, and all of a sudden, it's time for war. Well, I think we need to ask ourselves if this should have transpired this way. They went from hearing about something, you see it twice in this passage, that they heard it, verse 11, that they heard of it in verse 12, and next thing you know, they're declaring war. Well, let me start off with something good here. They had a passion for holiness. We're about to examine why they wanted to go to war, because if these two and a half tribes were building an altar that was to another god. If these two and a half tribes were building an altar even to Yahweh himself, this was wrong. God had said so in his law. They weren't to build an altar like this. And so they had a passion, an immediate reaction based on holiness, based on God's word that said, this can't go on. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. To have a passion for holiness is good. But assuming distrust of your brother, starting with a point of distrust and not learning about the situation. Well, that was bad. This borders, at least, on folly. They got the judging cart before the learning horse, you could say. Before they examined the situation in detail, before they went into conversation with their brothers, they declared war. And you need to do that work of investigating the situation before you judge. That's the case. Proverbs says that a man who answers too soon, who gives a word, who gives a response too soon, it's a folly and it's a shame to him. And I think we're seeing a little bit of folly here. There are commentators who are kind of split on this issue, whether the tribes declaring war here were in the right, that they did the right thing and that there was no fault at all. And then there are others who say that they were totally in the wrong that the two and a half tribes were just fine. And I seem to see uh, both going on here. Neither side was completely doing exactly what they were to do. But these tribes declaring war were certainly overstepping their bounds. The court of public opinion moves quickly. And the court of public opinion is not slow to judge, is it? We have always lived in a time, but especially today, with all of our technology, where we are so quick to make declarations of war, if nowhere else, even in our own heart, right? We are so quick to make judgments without seeking to understand, without investigating. Well, let's see how this plays out in their situation, because as this goes on, I think we have more and more to learn. We see, starting in verse 13, that the sons of Israel start having a, a conversation with the two and a half tribes. Across the land they go to meet up with these two and a half tribes. They have their accusations in hand. And as is often the case, by the way, maybe you've noticed, as is often the case when someone is really passionate about making a judgment without being understanding, 
The accusations are kind of all over the place, and that's what we're about to see. Their accusations are kind of varied here. Let's look at verse 16 together. This is the first accusation they level at these two and a half tribes. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? So their first accusation is to say that this was an unfaithful act of rebellion. You see those words there? Unfaithful act that you are rebelling against the Lord your God. You're turning away from following Yahweh. Now again, there, there was a note in the law about this, and I'll just read this to you from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. God had told Israel, Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. But in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. So at their time, they had their altar. It was in Shiloh. We looked at that last week. They put together the tent of meeting in Shiloh, and they had one altar in Israel located in one of the tribes. And so as they see this altar, they say, whoa, 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 this shouldn't be this way. This was an apparent transgression, apparent being the bold word there. They were apparently transgressing the law. And of course, this was a large altar. It was seen from far away. And to the sons of Israel, that was really showing off their rebellion, a large act of evil. So the first accusation they level is that this was an unfaithful act. It was an act of rebellion. Let's look at the next accusation, verses 17 and 18. They all kind of build on one another. Verse 17, it says, Is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us, from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, He will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. So that's their next point as they move along with their accusations that they're worshiping a false god, just like they did in Peor. You can read about that story in Numbers 25, but Israel was joined to a false god, one of the Baals or Baals, however you want to pronounce that. They were joined to a false god. And because they were joined to a false god, Yahweh, the one true God, sent a plague on Israel. You may remember that 25,000 died by plague because of what they did. And so here they say, you're going to give us another plague. The whole congregation is going to be affected because you're perhaps joining to a false god. It's interesting to note that here at the scene is Phineas. Phineas was there at Peor when this happened, and Phineas killed a couple of people very specifically in an interesting way in Numbers 25 as he was upholding the righteousness of God. And that's a story you can read again in Numbers chapter 25. But here Phineas is again, perhaps with that same sort of zeal that he had in Peor ready to purge the evil from Israel. Let's keep reading verses 19 and 20. There's more that comes to the surface here. Verse 19, If, however, the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. Verse 20, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban, and wrath fall on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. So now they're taking another tactic, and they're saying, 
if your land is unclean, if you don't like your land and so you're building an altar on our side of the river, just come on over, move everybody over. You can live among us in the land of Canaan. This would be closer to Shiloh for you if you moved into our land and you can use the one true altar. He brings up Achan in verse 20, or the group brings up Achan. I'm assuming you remember reading about him. He was hiding some of the things that were under the ban. He was hiding things that weren't his until the Lord called him out on it, and he died with his sons and daughters. He didn't die alone, it says at the end of verse 20, but it impacted other people. And they're saying, look, if you sin against God, it's going to impact us. Interestingly, Phineas and the heads of the ten tribes, they offer them a way out. You see that in verse 19. Come into our land. I think that's important to note, and we'll come back to that in a bit. They were assuming that they thought the land was unclean. Well, as you read through these accusations, you can almost picture them in your mind's eye of gasping for breath as they get to the end of this. They're laying out all the things. You've acted unfaithfully. You've rebelled against the Lord. This is just like it was at Peor. This is just like it was with Achan, and on and on they're going, and they're leveling these charges at these two and a half tribes. Well, now it's time for the two and a half tribes to say just exactly what was going on, because if you haven't read this story, if you haven't looked ahead here this morning, you might be wondering too, what on earth could they be doing that would justify this? Maybe you're siding with the ten who came to confront them. Well, let's look at their response together, starting in verse 21. These two and a half tribes say to the families of Israel, verse 22, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and may Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or if it was an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if to offer a burnt offering or a grain offering on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord Himself require it. The first thing we see is some humility. Some humility was brought into the situation, and that's always refreshing. The first thing they say is, God knows, and if we have done anything wrong, kill us now. (laughs) May the Lord Himself take vengeance on us for what we have done wrong. That's the first thing that they say in response to these charges. The two and a half tribes here affirm the need for holiness in Israel. They're not fighting against holiness. They're saying, yes, there should be holiness among God's people. Our desires are not more important than the holiness of God. And they say, That God Himself knows. I love that in verse 22. The Lord knows. He knows our heart. He knows that we weren't doing this in rebellion, and now we want to make you know, sons of Israel. We want you to know that this was done not for any sinful reason. They're acting in humility. We see something else about them starting in verse 24. They continue, but truly we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying, In time to come, your sons may say to our sons, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you, you sons of Reuben and sons of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may take our sons, or may may make our sons, stop fearing the Lord. So not only do we see humility from these two and a half tribes, but now they're revealing that they have some foresight. If you remember that map, 
You have the Jordan River that divides the ten tribes from the other ones. And they're saying, look, we, we were thinking about this as we go back to Gilead, as we cross the Jordan. We were thinking, you know, a hundred years from now, you, we might have grandkids that are fighting with each other just because we're on the other side of the Jordan. Because God gave the land of Canaan to Israel, and He allowed us to stay in Gilead, but one of these days, you could see someone saying, wait a second, you're not really part of us, you're all the way over there, and conflict arising. And so there was foresight on the part of these two and a half tribes seeking to get ahead of potential division in Israel, people who dwelt in Gilead. They had humility, they had foresight, and then finally we see really, really important, they had loyalty. Verse 26, Therefore we said, Let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, rather it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us, that we are to perform the service of the Lord before Him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings, so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord." They sought unity in the land. They were loyal to the nation. They were loyal to the Lord. And this altar was really just another memorial. We've been seeing over and over and over again in the book of Joshua, these memorials. Usually they're stones that are built up. And here they built a humongous altar as a testament to the unity of the nation. That when any tribe looks at that, they'll remember that it doesn't matter what side of the Jordan you're on, but that we are all sons of Israel and that we have unity in God. So now, those who had made their long list of accusations, who were ready to stab them through with javelins, how are they going to respond? <laughs> After rushing in and saying, why are you acting so unfaithfully? They hear this explanation and, oh, of course, of course. Why didn't, why didn't we think of that? I love the way Dale Ralph Davis put this. He says, what a happy irony. Israel fears the altar is an expression of infidelity, while the eastern tribes affirm it is a means of preventing infidelity. What good news. Well, let's look at verses 30 and 31. It says, When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Wow. They went back to the other people and all the people agreed that this was a good thing. All of Israel now is, is settled and this conflict doesn't exist anymore. Now they know that there truly is unity in the land. Well, why is this story in the Bible? <laughs> why would God preserve a misunderstanding? You ever think about stuff like that when you read through the Bible? It's like, oh, well, that is just, that is very interesting. What does God have me to learn from this? Well, I do think that there's great application for the church today, and I have four applications that I want us to make together that we can glean from this and even apply to our own fellowship here, okay? So as we consider what just transpired here, I want to consider a positive from those who declared war. And I already mentioned this, but I want to hit it again. 
caring about holiness, a concern and a care for holiness among the people of God. Francis Schaeffer said, these men were sick of war. (laughs) Think about this. Seven years they've been doing battle. And again, I I think it bears repeating because we're just so far removed. This is hand-to-hand combat. You're seeing looks on people's faces. You have to get really close to be in battle at this time. No drone strikes, no rifles, no throwing stars, none of that, okay? They had to be very close to one another. And they've just gone through seven years of it. Seven years. And these ten tribes, when they heard that there was wickedness perhaps in the land, they said, more war. Now, you can look at that in a couple of ways, but I'm going to choose to be, on this point, um, really kind of gracious or positive with the way we look at this. They cared about holiness so much that they were willing to go to battle, even against their own countrymen, their brothers, for the sake of protecting Yahweh's name. They didn't want a day to pass by now that God had brought them to this point. They didn't want a day to pass by that they would say, um, yeah, we, we tolerated some false worship. Or we tolerated some complacency with God's holy name. They were ready to go to war to, again. And, and as we think about our own lives, I think you, you probably know this. How easy is it for us Once we've obtained the promise, once we've obtained our inheritance through the gospel, how easy is it for us to tolerate things that we shouldn't tolerate? How easy is it for us to become complacent in matters of holiness? It can become very easy because we have unconditional blessings just like Israel, don't we? We have the unconditional blessing of salvation in Christ. You can't do anything to change that. This is God's work. He's done it, and He will see it through to the end. And yet we're living in this time in between. Our salvation in time here on earth and our ultimate salvation when we're glorified with God forevermore. And here in the in-between, it's our duty to steward the blessing well. It's our calling, it's our responsibility as Christians to care about holiness. And so we start with that first point of application that we are really to consider the heart of Phineas and the heads of the ten tribes as caring about holiness. A second point of application from this story is that our resolutions in conflict, our resolutions need to be rooted in truth and in love. They need to be rooted both in truth and in love. When I say love here, I'm talking about having patience, having mercy, bearing with one another. Because what happens if there's a conflict and you don't have any love and you just have truth? There will be war, right? (laughs) Then there will be war. It will be bloody. There will be a mess. But the beauty of what God has called us to in Christ is that we reflect both truth and love in what we're doing. In fact, we're called as the church in the New Testament. It says, to one another we are to speak the truth in love. That's how we are to do it. When Jesus came, He came as one full of both grace and truth. He didn't come as one with grace but no truth. That would be a pretty messed up gospel at that point, wouldn't it? And He didn't come just with truth. He didn't come and just fire darts at everybody, rightfully so, for all of their sin, condemning them all. 
and, and making that the end of it. But instead, he offers together grace and truth. And in our relationships, that should be reflected as well. Praise God that Phineas and the ten leaders of those ten tribes weren't so foolish as to kill anybody rashly in this situation we just read about. It may have been their impulse to go to war, but praise God they delayed once they got there so they could hear out what had happened. We must be so careful, Christians, we must be so careful about rolling into a situation and making an accusation. We might think we're bringing truth. We might think we're bringing love, but we can do it wrong. When we come into a conflict or a situation with even someone else in this room, a brother or a sister in Christ, we are to pursue both truth and love. Perhaps it would have been better for Phineas and the Ten. That almost sounds like a good band name, doesn't it? Phineas and the Ten. Perhaps it would have been better for them to lead off the conversation with, can you help us understand what's going on here? (laughs) I think that would have been a better first question. But instead they say, what are you doing? We're going to kill you. Shouldn't have done that. A third point of application. This has to do with providing ways of escape. I mentioned it briefly as we were going through the text, but at one point, Phineas and the others did offer a way of escape. This was back in verse 19 of chapter 22, when they said, if you think your land is unclean, come in and live with us. Move in. Move in all your stuff. They just did these boundaries. They were willing to redo the boundaries again to fit these people in here if it meant that there would be holiness in Israel, if it meant that God would be honored rightly in the nation. They were willing to bring them in. They gave them the offer to leave Gilead and to go into Canaan to receive provisions. And that was an exemplary offer from Phineas and the rest. Our goal as God's people, our goal should always be to restore and to heal, not to blow things up, okay? It says in uh, Galatians chapter 6 that the point of our bearing one another's burdens is toward restoration. And restoration is always more beautiful than a demolition. Demolitions are fun, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Uh, and, And the fun lasts for a night, but then it's all over. My dad recently restored a 1950 Ford pickup and just went the whole way. I mean, he got it in really bad shape and redid the whole thing. Boy, is that beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a gorgeous, beautiful thing to see that happen before your eyes. And it takes time, and it's frustrating, and it's messy, and so often you want to blow it up, and you want to quit. But God has called us to more than that, hasn't He? To restore, to rebuild, and to heal. Perhaps you've known some Christians in your life that have just said, I'm done with that person. I'm done with you. So often we jump to that way too soon. And again, so often, it can be because you sin differently than I do, and I'm done with you. That's wrong, Christian. We are to have a heart. If there's someone who's done wrong, if there's someone who's acted foolishly, our job is to move forward in truth and love toward the goal of restoration, not to make war, not to divide, not to blow up, but as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people, right? That's our goal. That should be our goal. And then fourthly, this passage shows us how we can promote unity even amid diversity. To promote unity even when there is diversity. Did you know that not each member or 
not each member of each church, and not each church will do all the same stuff. You do know this. The body is made of many members, and the ear is not the nose, is not the foot, is not the hand. We're different. And churches are different. This church does things that, in ways that no other church does, for good and for bad, okay? Every church is different. And even in Israel, among the 12 tribes, they were different. They had different roles. You can think of the tribe of uh, Levi. They had a very specific role in Israel. And you have these two and a half tribes. They didn't live in the land of Canaan. And it appears as though, according to Moses, according to Joshua, the Lord working through them, that was okay. And they needed this altar there in their judgment. They needed this altar to remind them that it was okay. Because they had this foresight where they looked down the road and they said, there is potential for division here. And isn't that just so strange? It's, it's part of our fallen nature that we take diversity and use it as a means of division. That's not the way God created diversity. God, you know, God loves diversity. He's building His church where there are different members. In fact, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Even within the Godhead, there is diversity. God loves diversity. And when we take diversity and use it as a means of division in His church, that's sad. It is a cause for sadness. Our God is a God of both unity and diversity, and we should show both of these in the church. It can't be all one or the other. In our diversity, as we are different, we've been gifted differently. Our personalities are so different. Right, Jerry? (laughs) We're we're all so different. But even amid that, don't we have great unity? And so we can appreciate the diversity while upholding the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. That should be at the forefront of our minds when we gather together in fellowship. And I do think it starts by trusting one another. I'm kind of reading into the text here, but it seems to me that these two and a half tribes were always looked at by the other tribes like, hmm, you're about to turn on us. You smell funny. Maybe not literally, but we just, I don't know if we can trust you. Yeah, you can have that land, but you better keep your word. As Christians, we should start from a place of trust. Perhaps some of you have, have had that mentality for a while that trust is earned. What if in God's church, distrust was earned? That our default was trust. Loving trust of brother and sister in the family of God until it's proven otherwise from someone. I think that's more biblical love, don't you? To start with the position of trust and to offer loving service to one another in trust. When you think of that that question, how shall we then live? I think that's a great answer. In the church, how shall we then live with one another? Well, let's appreciate our differences. Let's uphold our unity. Let's start from a position of loving trust for one another. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. That's a, part, that's a church I want to be a part of. Okay? Well, I hope you enjoyed this little study. We only have two chapters left in the book of Joshua. Chapters 23 and 24, we'll cover those the next two Sundays, and then we'll be in the book of uh, Psalms. We're going to do a few Psalms for the month of November before starting something else in December, okay? Let's pray together. God, again, we thank you because every good gift comes from you. The gift of unity, the gift of diversity comes from you. The gift of fellowship. God, we ask that today as we consider how you worked in your nation, Israel, how you...
preserved these accounts that at first glance seem so strange to us, how you have so much truth preserved there for us, that we have so much we can learn, so much we can benefit from. Help us to finish out this study of the book of Joshua well, that we would continue to see what it is that you have for us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing on the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen.